Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great to be with you, as always, on Saturdays. By the way, be sure to join us during the week. Fox Business Network. Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Every day, Monday through Friday. If you can't make it at 4 for some reason, please just text your favorite nine-year-old and she'll show you how to DVR the show. And here, you can hear us over the internet, live streaming, LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com, all across the country, throughout the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. Big following around the Milky Way. We're getting all kinds of reports from outer space. So, one of the big topics this morning is, what is Bidenomics? Joe Biden is out there on the campaign trail. He spent uh, last week and this week out there couple of different events talking about something called Bidenomics. And then he goes on to say, well, it's the middle out and the bottom up. Blah, 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 blah. Middle out, but no one knows what that means. No one knows what that means. And we'll have uh, Kevin Hassett and John Carney and some others weigh in on that over the course of the show today. Liz Peek, Steve Moore, but you know, what is this, what is middle out, bottom up? What does that mean? I mean, the whole thing is basically $6 trillion of spending, higher regulations, more taxes, higher inflation, and a very poor economy. In fact, the jobs numbers came out yesterday were absolutely soggy and underwhelming. More on that coming. But this business about middle out, bottom up, and then he says Bidenomics are working, but Reaganomics didn't work. Yeah, sure. You know, Reagan's tax cuts promoted 5% growth for eight years. Actually, Reagan's tax cuts launched about a 25-year economic boom. Trump tax cuts worked for a brief moment for a couple of years. He may be back again, according to the polls. But my point is, the whole, the whole essence of Bidenomics is a grift, okay? What he's doing here is total top-down government spending. Or it has nothing to do with the middle class, which is suffering. Blue-collar workers, working folks, lower incomes are getting clobbered by inflation. Real wages are falling, I think 26 or 27 straight months. But this is all top-down government spending. You know what it is? It's government spending to big corporations who agree with him about uh, radical climate change and the Green New Deal and various DEI and woke. Then you've got various democratic left-wing interest groups in the blue states and all the blue cities. They're the ones who were benefiting from this, not the rest of the population, not the overall economy. Big spending, high taxes, over-regulation, war against business, war against fossil fuels, war against job creators. 
I mean, it's crony capitalism at its worst, industrial policy at its worst, big government socialism, that's what it is. Newt Gingrich coined that phrase not so long ago, and it's still true. It's a regulatory binge, and it's a spending binge, and it's an inflation binge. And I would redefine it as just saying Bidenomics is baloney. That's really what it is. It's absolute baloney. And for him to suggest that middle out, I guess he's talking about the middle class. The middle class is not prospered. I mean, if you take a look at Biden's economic polls, his handling of the economy, favorables somewhere is around 25 to 30 percent. Unfavorables somewhere is around 60 to 70 percent. And that's been steady for quite a while and actually getting a wee bit worse. And in fact, you take a look with Trump, who is the Republican leader right now by a wide margin. You know, former President Donald Trump, his, uh, his numbers on the economy are almost the mirror image. Okay, 60% approve, only 30% disapprove, that kind of thing. I mean, it's just the whole thing's a big grift. It's a big grift. It's just a payoff to Biden's supporters. That's all it is. That's all it's ever been. Crony capitalism at its worst, or maybe crony socialism. I don't know which. But it's top-down stuff. It has nothing to do with the middle class. The middle class has been damaged enormously in the last couple of years. And by the way, you know, Biden's first year in office, 2021, I mean, that, that was the aftermath of the Trump tax cuts. And the economy grew by 5% or so. And that was the comeback from the pandemic. The pandemic gradually ended and people went back to work. That's where the jobs were. They're not new jobs, it's just people coming back to work. But Biden's second year, okay, his second year, 2022, which is really his first full year in office, the economy grew by just about 1%. And in fact, for the first half of this year, 2023, if I pencil in, we don't know the official numbers yet, but if I pencil in 2% growth in the second quarter. Basically, for the last six quarters, 18 months, the economy has grown by 1.3% at an annual rate, which is a pathetic growth rate. We should be growing at 3, 4, 5, even 6%, especially coming after the pandemic. And the other point I want to make is that the so-called Bidenomics was premised on a big lie. The lie was that he inherited a terrible economy. He always says the economy was reeling and inflation was high. I mean, that's just not true. Factually, not true. The economy was growing at about 6.5% when he took office. And the inflation rate was 1.4% when he took office. Now the economy is growing, as I said, at about 1.3%. And the inflation rate is still hovering close to 5. It got as high as 9 plus. And of course, the Federal Reserve is going to keep jacking up interest rates because of Biden's overspending, which caused inflation. I mean, Biden used 
a lie, that is, the economy is reeling, to justify that original $2 trillion stimulus package, which is what launched the inflation in the first place. And the inflation has clobbered middle and lower income wages. Real wages keep falling. That's why this is going to be a pocketbook election, a kitchen table election. The level of consumer prices has gone up almost 16% under Joe Biden. Grocery prices up 20%, energy prices up 35%. I mean, even now, gasoline prices, which have come off their peaks, they're still running about $3.50 plus. They were less than $2 a gallon. So all this stuff predicated on a lie, massive government spending and central planning and regulating, Again, to benefit his followers, this is you know, typical Democrats scratching every Democratic left-wing itch there is out there. Unions, teachers' unions, climate change people pouring trillions of dollars into climate change. And by the way, we're going to have the distinguished physicist and climate expert Steve Coonan on later in the show, who's going to talk about how climate change is not a problem over the next hundred years, if, uh, if uh, temperatures rise a couple of points Fahrenheit, it'll have virtually no impact on the economy whatsoever. All this apocalyptic existential threat stuff is completely wrong. But again, more Biden lies, more Biden baloney. That's what Bidenomics is. And uh, there's no growth strategy here. Again, we should be moving toward lower taxes, rolling back all these new regulations that are absolutely stifling business. We should be curbing federal spending and borrowing and debt creation. And we should be fighting inflation. We should be restoring incentives to the economy so that if it pays more, after tax to work or save or invest, then people will grab those incentives and go to work and create and build and generate opportunities. There's none of that with Bidenomics. It's exactly the reverse. Mr. Biden and his followers hate business. They're always blaming business. They love jobs. They love employees. They just don't like employers, which is a typical left-wing democratic position. We've seen it for years. And the whole thing, as I say, is a grift. Using the government levers, before the Republicans took over the House, in the first two years, they used all the government levers to spend and regulate and tax in order to favor democratic interest groups. That's all. It's very simple. And it's damaged every sector of the economy. And we're not growing. We are stuck with stagflation. And we will see a recession in all probability. Some of the models that I look at, particularly the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's uh, interest rate models, suggest there's a 70% chance of recession in the next year. And the economy is slowing down you know, left and right. In fact, let's look at 
yesterday's jobs numbers came in. I call it soggy. Soggy, okay? Now, the, the top-line number for non-farm payrolls, 209,000. Now, that was the lowest since December 2020, but hang on a second. The prior two months were revised lower by 110,000. So, actually, we saw only 99,000 gains in the month of June. That's a very poor number. And then you look under the hood of that report some more. Take a look at private payrolls. Now, again, the Bidens don't like the private sector. They don't like free enterprise. They like the government sector. But private payrolls reported up 149,000, which is a soft number. However, 98,000 private jobs were erased in May and April because of revisions. So there were really only 51,000 private sector jobs created in June, which is a very low number, which is a number that really puts up a red flag about a potential recession. Now, Biden's out there yesterday, again, touting something called Bidenomics, and he skips over these facts, and he talks about growing the economy by creating jobs. But in fact, his job creation is now running lower and lower. He talks about a manufacturing boom, but the fact is we only created 7,000 manufacturing jobs in June. Those jobs fell 3,000 in May. So you've created 4,000 new manufacturing, 4,000 The past year, manufacturing jobs have averaged only 14,000. And by the way, the, the biggest gainer in the report yesterday, you guessed it, 60,000 government jobs, okay? You can't make this stuff up. 60,000 government jobs were the biggest gainer. So what does that tell you? It's a lopsided economy. It's a lopsided economy. Now, average weekly earnings are up only 3.7%. The inflation rate, you've got 4% CPI. You've got a 5.3% core CPI. So real wages continue to fall. And again, the actual growth rate for the last six quarters, 18 months, is just a paltry 1.3%. 1.3%. The other point I want to make is Biden on the campaign trail, besides this uh, phony baloney Bidenomics stuff, middle out, bottom up, what you got is middle down, bottom down, and it's all top-down government spending for Democratic uh, interest groups. But the other thing is Biden keeps telling people that he cut the budget deficit by $1.7 trillion. It's just an absolute lie. It's an absolute lie. We had uh, former CBO director Doug Holtz-Eakin was on the uh, Kudlow show last, uh, let's see, it was Thursday. Thursday. And he said, I'm particularly irked as a former CBO director that he continues to assert that he cut the deficit by $1.7 trillion when the Washington Post, of all people, gave him a bottomless Pinocchio for this. So I'll just say, you know, we'll talk about these themes over the course of the show. But he's out there in the campaign trail for Bidenomics. It is a loser. It is a loser. 
The public knows it's a loser. You can't fool all the people all the time. No matter how much he repeats these stock phrases, no matter how much he repeats these untruths, the reality is he took a booming economy and turned it into a bust. And the bust is looking worse and worse. 70% probability of recession in the next year. Stock prices are starting to go down again. Interest rates are rising again. The Federal Reserve is going to have to tighten money again. We are not in good shape, and it pains me to talk about it because I want this country to be great. I want this country to be great again, to quote somebody who's running for president with a much more prosperity-driven message. You know who. Donald J. Trump. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So, just to wrap up this story, this election, I think, will be run on pocketbook issues, economic related issues, kitchen table related issues. And the failure of Bidenomics, which were founded on a lie, turning a boom into a bust, is going to be devastating, I believe, for Mr. Biden's reelection and for Democrats across the board. We will talk some more about this over the course of the show. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, We've got the great Kellyanne Conway to talk some politics and anything else. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We welcome my very dear friend, Kellyanne Conway, former Trump senior counselor and campaign manager for the Trump Pence campaign in 2016, now running the KA Consulting Firm and author of a very good book, by the way, Here's the Deal, a memoir. You ought to look at that book. Got a lot of very good insights into him. Kellyanne, thank you. How are you? Hello? Hey, Larry. Thanks There you are. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for coming on. So, Kellyanne, um, among your many, many, many skills, you are one of America's premier pollsters, and I wanted to ask you about the polls, okay, right now. There's a story up in the New York Sun. Uh, it's a handicapper called Race for the White House, okay? I don't know if you know them or not. Race for the White House, which shows DeSantis is poised to win only one state, as the campaign of Florida governor struggles to make headway. Uh, this is a devastating article for Mr. DeSantis. This guy is saying if the election were today, the nominating President Trump would carry 774 delegates. Mr. DeSantis would carry 440. The only thing he'd get is Florida. This is a far cry from what people were talking about just a few months ago. What do you make of that? What is your polling show? What are you thinking about this race right now? 
Larry, there's no question that President Trump is the juggernaut in this race. He's the front runner. He'll continue to be the front runner because everybody's made a cardinal mistake, including, if not especially, Ron DeSantis, who probably was the best position to say the following and never did. I am not the alternative to Donald Trump. I'm the alternative to Joe Biden. They should all be saying that. Sure, you got to get past Trump to get the nomination. I got that. But what you want to do is transport yourself to the voters, to the donors, to the political cognoscenti, to the anchors and the, and the radio show hosts. By positioning yourself as the alternative to Joe Biden's awful economy, the stupid Bidenomics, this energy <laughs> dependence, what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in our streets, in our communities with crime, what's going on at the southern border. Six million people have walked across the southern border, Larry on Biden's watch, that is a higher number than the population of 31 states in this country. People understand what's happening under Biden, and yet the obsession with, coupled with the inability to overcome Donald Trump, has really cost DeSantis um, early juice. And, you know, his people all want to say, it's early, it's early. Larry, we heard for the better part of two years, and certainly since the November midterms, DeSantis, 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 DeSantis. All of a sudden, it's early. It's getting late for the governor of Florida. You know how I feel. I said from the beginning, I told a lot of his big donors, he shouldn't run. He's ruining himself for 2028, in my view, because a lot of these voters will not forget all these early stumbles taken on Mickey Mouse every day instead of taking on the Biden economy, inflation, I, I'm all for I'm all for hitting back at the woke. I too don't. I listen. I have four teenagers. They once were eight years old. I don't think they should be uh, they should be exposed to sexually explicit content. But he didn't stop there. He went all the way to 18, and he just won't let go of the cultural um, bone. His uh, the guy who's running one of the people running the super PAC, uh, which is just flush with I think Larry nine figures of cash, a hundred million dollars plus, has said publicly that the Republican nomination process will not be decided through trade and taxes. It's going to be decided through the culture war. I totally disagree with that, Larry. People are drowning economically. Our polls show it. Um, so for, De for DeSantis and the rest of the other thing is Vivek Ramaswamy is starting to really creep up on DeSantis. See, DeSantis started with a lot of goodwill and high in the polls because he's been talked about and he's known as doing a good. I think DeSantis is a good governor running a bad presidential campaign. Let me just say that. But Vivek Ramaswamy is taking on woke in a different way, but he's also taking on China. I don't hear DeSantis doing that. Vivek basically says, let's stop trading with China until we get all this right on the virus, on fentanyl, on forced technology transfers. So you have other people out there speaking on the issues. And I'll say this last point. We see it in the polling. Competition in a crowded field has helped Donald Trump. Competition in a crowded field is really going to hurt Joe Biden. You know, Kellyanne, um, we've talked about this, but it looks like Trump is running a very good issues campaign. He's putting out issues paper after issues paper. Uh, he's got some really smart, you know, he's got Vince Haley in there. He's got Ross Worthington in there. Yeah. Uh, he talks to other people like yourself and others uh, about various issues. This is more like the 26 cam uh, 2016 campaign, which was basically an issues campaign with heavy emphasis on the economy, to be sure. Uh, not the 2020 campaign, which was more of a grievance campaign. Now, this is something you've said, but my thought here is 
this is really helping him. I mean, I understand there's a backlash against all the um, indictments and so forth and the two-tier justice system. I get that, and that's important. But on issues, and it's going to be a pocketbook election, Trump is excelling, whereas DeSantis has fallen flat. No doubt. And Larry, on this matter of the media keep missing it. They uh, attacked Trump for the town hall at CNN. They focused on what he said, this, that, and the other, but didn't know what happened during what year. Uh, but they missed what the country heard, which is Donald Trump saying, drill, baby, drill. Donald Trump saying, yes. we built this great economy, I'm going to build it again. That's what the people hear. They're starving and thirsting for that message. And I'll tell you, part of why Trump's doing well, you hit on it, is when you want to hire someone to do a big job, you're more likely to hire someone who's already that's the former president. And in addition to his issues papers, Larry, I love these short policy videos. And guess what they cost? Next to nothing. Those rallies, they cost up to a half a million dollars between the security and the, the, the getting people there, the whole thing. Half a million dollars. He does the policy videos for free, and people are reminded of how much better their lives were when, when he was pre-COVID. Now, last point about 2016. I'm very critical of the 2020 campaign. I, I go over it in, in, in detail in my book, Here's the Deal, and I do that not to um, single out people or make them feel bad or get just. I do it because I like to show the contrast of 2016's issues campaign where we had hunger, swagger, we were understaffed, under-resourced, but what we had in Trump and in Pence, by the way, Two leaders who are willing to go out there every single day and talk about build the wall, cut your taxes, reduce the regulations, these three-word phrases that had meaning and heft behind them. Larry, I think a big inflection point for that 2016 campaign happened in September when when Donald Trump went to the New York Economic Club Mm -hmm. and with your help and the help of others gave an incredible, not just speech, Larry, but laid out his plan, a specific plan that was verifiable, easy to understand, and he did it with, with joy. He did it with, uh, this, is what the, this is what the plan's going to be. He said we, shouldn't be, we should not be settling for less than 2% growth each year that, that Obama said. We should be energy independent. We should be cutting taxes for employers and employees. We should be repatriating the wealth that is parked legally overseas, and on and on and on. And when he did that, that... 21 justices for the Supreme Court. It's the specific lists and the ideas that people were able to look at and say, okay, I'm not just taking a chance on Donald Trump because he's a business guy and he's different and he's funny. Um, I'm taking, I'm, I'm not, I'm not taking a chance. I'm following the policies. And Hillary Clinton didn't do that. She was in Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket raising money. She was out there yelling about Donald Trump and Trump under, I think, under the noses of the media, was actually putting together specific policies, doing it again, and it's, it's a winning combination every single time. You know, I think that CNN town hall debate, or whatever it was, was a turning point, because uh, the CNN lady, all she wanted to do was talk about 2020 and January 6, blah, blah, blah. And if you go back to Drill Baby Drill, uh, which was a huge applause line in answer to inflation. He also included tax cuts. He also included lower regulations. He also included um, economic growth in general. I thought that was a bone crusher. That's like that was a great moment for him 
Three and a half million people saw it on CNN, but probably tens of millions of people saw it on YouTube and elsewhere. And I just think that was an absolute bone crusher. I don't think, you know, people looked at that and said, yeah, yeah, there he is. He's back. Uh, nobody else in the field uh, has that breadth and has that message of issues, as you say, with experience uh, to compete with him. And you know what? He said that he did it again. And remember the Bedminster speech, Kelly? It was a bad day, hard day. He had to go to Miami for the arraignment. He flew back that night, gives a speech at Bedminster. Yes, he defends himself against the uh, charges of the documents, but he also had a very significant economic uh, uh, portion of that speech and other issues in that speech. And it's like nobody else can do that. And I think those two things, the CNN and the Bedminster speech, just made him you know, head and shoulders, head and shoulders above everybody else, including DeSantis. It's a great point, Larry. And I think the, uh, the CNN town hall did away with both Ron DeSantis's frontrunner status and uh, Chris Lick, the head of CNN. <laughs> uh, Trump yet again. David David uh, conquered two Goliaths with uh, one slingshot. Um, but seriously speaking, I get back to the main point here too, Larry, which is the what the media are telling people is true, and what the people hear and see as true. Yeah. They looked at the CNN town hall and what happened in Miami where you had, I mean, I, you know, I talked to Francis Suarez, the mayor of Miami, he said, Kellyanne, the, we all saw it then. He said, we're, we're preparing. You know, he called President Trump ahead of time. He had the press conference with the police. I thought that was important. He said, we're preparing for, you know, protests or crowds. The big crowd was the mainstream media from huh. all across the country, if not the world. Get Trump, get Trump, get Trump. And yet in their quest to always get Trump, they never get the story. Yeah, and getting the story means listening to what the people heard and saw, which is a former president say, look, I built this economy one time. We're going to do it again. And it's Trump without saying it, Larry. He's basically intimating to the public. This is why I'm not going to allow what happens in Miami or Georgia or D.C. or New York to break my stride. Hmm. The issues are too significant. The country's down, downfall is too consequential now under Biden for me to just go into the sunset, go have a great life with my 10 grandchildren, my beautiful, brilliant wife, my golf game. He's in it for the, re he's in it for the right reasons. Mm. And, and people are hearing something different. I think the left ends up prevailing and winning if they convince everybody to believe what they say rather than what we see. I'm betting on the American people to go with what they see. Every time. Kellyanne, you got a second. Can we take a quick break and come back with a couple more minutes? Yes, sir. Just the usual day of uh, the youngest at a, at a lacrosse tournament. Let's do it. Oh, terrific. <laughs> okay, great stuff. Folks, we're talking to Kellyanne Conway, former senior counselor to President Trump, uh, now head of the KAC Consulting. Her great book, Here's the Deal, a memoir. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with much more. Please stick around. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with the great Kellyanne Conway, former Trump senior counselor, uh, campaign manager in 2016 for Trump Pence, now running KACKA Consulting, and author of the excellent book, Here's the Deal, a memoir. Uh, Kellyanne, in between lacrosse shots, I love that, by the way, terrific stuff. Um, 
Let me ask you something. Another point here. You've had all these major Supreme Court decisions uh, recently, but also the last two years. Uh, they struck down racial preferences on affirmative action. They rolled back regulations. They put Roe v. Wade back to the states. They've uh, struck for religious freedom. When Trump campaigned, he campaigned that he would put constitutional conservatives on the Supreme Court, and he did so. And it's had an enormous, enormous impact. He had the backbone to stand up to everybody and do it. He got three justices now, changed the court. I mean, it's the, it's the Justice Roberts Supreme Court, but it's really the Donald Trump Supreme Court, is it not? It is, and more than 230 or so on the federal judiciary, the circuit courts, the district courts as well. Larry, one thing that President Trump always said routinely when we were in the White House was he simply cannot believe that President Obama had left so many vacancies. The presumption was that Hillary was going to come in and fill those vacancies, but Donald Trump did. And, of course, as you say, he was, he was poised to fill one-third of the seats on the Supreme Court, and we see the fruits of that now. I said earlier, in addition to the address to the New York Economic Club in September 2016, I've always felt that that list of 10 that then grew to 21 men and women who the president said, here they are. Here are the men and women I would consider to put on the United States Supreme Court. It was so important, particularly after Access Hollywood, for him to point to that and say, these are the types that I, and these are the actual individuals. So fast forward, here's where I see the court going. I think it's a pretty libertarian court. And if I had to pick one word to describe their recent opinions, particularly this June, late June 2023, it's fairness. Mm -hmm. They're saying in the student loan case, plumbers and pipe fitters and taxpayers without an act of Congress should not be paying for the student loans of lawyers and doctors. They're saying it's not fair to have a Christian website de designer um, be compelled to into speech that violates her religious beliefs. The court has never held that you should be compelled to violate your religious beliefs based on speech. So that's just a consistent opinion. They're saying it's not fair to consider race in college admissions. And so I like this whole matter of fairness because I believe, Larry, that while the left says equity, 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 which, as we know, is equality of outcomes, Americans and this Supreme Court are saying fairness, fairness, equality of opportunity. And watch that to be a big theme going forward in 2024, um, up and down the ballot, but I think particularly, look, even Trump is saying that two-term, two-term, two-tier justice system that is about fairness. Um, the six million people walking over the border—that uh, is, that is unfair. But criminals going free and businesses being looted, people look at that as unfair. Inflation and our wages not keeping pace with that, people say it's just not fair. So this is a big issue that I think the left has ceded to the right that I predict will be the, the going principle, not issue, but theme, the going thematic into 2024, beginning with that Supreme Court. And also, so this kind of goes to Trump's appeal to middle-class working folks. Middle-class yes. working folks used to be a Democratic constituency, has become a Trump constituency. Yes. And Larry, he only needs to peel off really single-digit percentages in all of these constituencies. So in 2020, the Democrats did better. Biden increased his take um, 7% on 
among white college-educated Americans, which basically is a big part of the Democratic Party now, telling the rest of us what to think, what to eat, how to feel, who to be. But they lost 2% among African Americans, and they lost 7 to 8%, depending on the exit polls, among Hispanic Americans. And, it's, and when you look at the union households, the way Trump was able to eat into what Hillary or any Democratic presidential nominee could, should have been able to rely upon in 2016 made a big difference. If he just gets four or five percent more of suburban women, if he so these are just all on the margins. And what you just said is incredibly important. We have direct what I call direct um, stakeholders in the system. So your middle class household, you're saying, I have a job. I have two, three jobs in my household, but we can't keep pace with the bills. We're not trying to afford Mercedes Benz and Teslas. We just want bacon and eggs. Mm. You have direct stakeholders that are going to look at the Trump economic message. But then you have what I call the concentric circles around them, the shareholders, the people who say, you know, it's not fair that my 25-year-old you know, son and, and his wife can't afford their first home, can't get out of debt because the Biden economy stinks. Uh, so you have people who also maybe would not be inclined to vote Republican for themselves who say, I'm okay, I, I can make it, but I'm worried about the next generation. I'm worried about the neighbor who's struggling a little bit with the mortgage. And it's a fascinating way to look at politics the way we look at them, because too often people look at you about your race, your gender, your income, your education level, and your geography. They put you in that box. The rise of independence in this country, Larry, is going to, they're, they're going to elect the next president of the United States. And those independents, they refuse to pledge allegiance to other, either party. They've declared their independence from both political parties. They don't like Washington. Joe Biden reeks of represents all that's wrong with the swamp in Washington. Mm. And Donald Trump, even though he lived there and worked there for four years, still has the upper hand to say, I'm not the guy in Washington. And he's guy he's the one with the backbone to take the swamp on again. And he knows where the bodies are buried this time. Kellyanne Conway, the best of the best. Thank you ever so much. Folks, Larry Cutlow, the goat. Thanks for having me. <laughs> all right. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, Kevin Hassett, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, is going to talk to us about the economy and jobs and the Federal Reserve. And what is Bidenomics? What is it? I'll tell you what it is. It's failing. It's baloney. I'm Kudlow. Stay with us. Much more. Larry Kudlow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And we bring in my great pal, Kevin Hassett, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, and author of The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. I call it the most important book of the 21st century, Stopping Socialism. Anyway, Kevin, thank you for doing this. We appreciate it. And I wanted to begin with the, your recent article in the National Review, The Fed Should Go Back Behind the Wizard of Oz's Curtain. 
And the subheading is, The Fed's poor record of forecasting economic conditions demonstrates that it shouldn't publish forecasts at all. You know, Kevin, uh, I remember back in the days of Paul Volcker, who used to go when he was Fed chair, and he used to go before Congress, and he would puff those cigars and sort of blow smoke at the senators, and he would basically say nothing, give up nothing. And he believed in the element of surprise, and he didn't want to tell people everything about it. And so what you're saying here is, in the last uh, 30, 40 years, they now try to tell people everything, and they're always wrong. Maybe they should tell them nothing. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and the extent to which they've been wrong is actually, like, as I talk about in the article, kind of theoretically interesting in the following sense. The, the Fed uh, has to sort of take expectations about future inflation and what they say, anchor them. And so they're always forecasting that inflation a year from now is going to go back to 2%. Uh, and they do that because, not that they believe it, I think, but because they're lying to people hoping to anchor their expectations. And that inherent conflict means that their forecasts are just necessarily going to be awful, unless you're in a, at a time when inflation is always 2%. And, and so I think they should they should just stop. Because imagine, you know, if, if economic decision makers are looking at the Fed forecast and deciding whether to buy a house or to get a mortgage now or, you know, to buy a car, then they're being misled. And it's really harming people. And so I think that this uh, idea that the Fed knows what it's doing and that its forecasts are good is something that we should give up. And and I think they should stop publishing them because the inherent conflict between anchoring expectations and then giving an accurate forecast is something that's not really resolvable, I don't think. Well, you write that baseball would never consider a rule that required the pitcher to announce the type of pitch before each throw. The Fed should stop publishing its forecasts and go back behind the curtain. I mean, why... Why are their forecasts so wrong? You mentioned this Mickey Levy paper. I, I know Mickey long time. Uh, why is it? I mean, they've got a lot of professional economists on the staff, not only in Washington, but around the system. Uh, what is it? Why do they get it wrong? I mean, they once again, they got inflation badly, badly wrong. Right. Well, I think that there, again, there are two things. One is they might really be lying. Right. So they might actually know that what they're saying is false, but they want to try to affect expectations with their forecast. But the other thing is that if you look at the Fed economists, they're kind of all or most of them trained at like Harvard and MIT, which are places that really uh, focus on Keynesian macroeconomics when they teach it. Right. And, and so in economics, they, they have uh, this thing called like the saltwater schools or the freshwater schools. And the freshwater schools like the University of Chicago are the places that believe in supply side economics and free markets. But everybody who's an economist at the Fed is basically trained by the socialists at Harvard. Hmm. Why is that? I mean, you know, Jay Powell, who served in a Republican administration, ought to know better. Why? I mean, why is that? Well, I think that what happens is that in the end, the staff uh, recruits uh, the young people that join the staff, yeah. and they yeah. tend to you know, favor people to come from their schools. I know that Jay really thought that Rich Clarida could come in and shake things up a little bit. Mm. And, and I know you and I both have a very high regard for Rich. But I yes. think that, as you know, these bureaucratic places are so impossible to change that I don't think Rich really did much to it. 
And I mean, the other the other option is they know they're wrong, but they're trying to influence expectations to cover up that they're wrong. I mean, that's a possibility. I don't mean to be overly cynical. Look, I started my entire career at the New York Fed in open market operations. So I'm an alumnus of the Fed system. You worked for the Federal Reserve in Washington for quite some time. I mean, so, you know, we don't have any uh, institutional uh, reasons to to slam the Fed. It's just that their performance is so disappointing, and it just seems like it happens time and time again. Yeah, and, and the other thing, too, though, is that don't forget that it's a really, really liberal institution, and an example of it is that I went to the Jackson Hole Conference uh, last summer, which you might recall is the sort of big uh, powwow for all the Fed economists and policymakers in the country, and I think I was the only conservative there. Uh, like, yeah. no kidding, you know, hundreds of people, but maybe there was another conservative there, but I don't think I remember them being there. And there are just all these people that, uh, you know, work in Democratic administrations to go back to the Fed and believe in Keynesian economics, don't think the supply side matters. And, uh, mm. That's why they got inflation wrong and why they get things wrong. But it also could be that they're being disingenuous about the forecast. So I agree. You know, I had the same ex- for years. I went to that conference for years. Um you know, back in uh, when Manley Johnson and Wayne Angel were on the board and then Greenspan became the chair and Alan was a friend. And in fact, I spoke on a couple panels. And I remember at some point, I don't know, the mid or late 90s, Kevin, I went and looked around and had the same experience that all the conservatives were gone. And I felt right. very lonely and I just stopped going. I mean, I just wouldn't go anymore. So I guess right. you're right. There's a very and I went last advice. year, but I haven't been invited back this year. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we gotta know what, what happened. But but it is true that last year when I was there, I was very aggressive about saying that they were behind the curve on inflation. Yeah, and I think that now they know that, so maybe they don't need me this year. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I think they do need you. You know, you'd make a very good Fed chairman, Kevin Hassan. You really <laughs> would. You'd make a hell of a good Fed chairman. Um, Kevin, talk, you sent this other paper to me this morning, This another National Review article, uh, where tax cuts are hot. I wanted to talk about that for a second because you've got all these states moving towards flat tax type, you know, lower tax rates, broader tax basis. You mentioned Iowa, Mississippi, Georgia, Arizona, Idaho, and you mentioned, let's see, currently seven states don't have any income, individual income taxes, Alaska, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and Wyoming. We did a, we did a piece, uh, a segment last night on the, on the Fox Business Show, um, a Bloomberg article, Kevin, um, I guess five or six southern states. So let me get this right. Texas, Florida, Georgia, uh, the two Carolinas, and Tennessee uh, now have a bigger GDP than all of the Northeast. Okay, so the red states in the south have a bigger GDP than all of the blue states in the Northeast. And um, Rick Perry came on and he said, look, it's lower taxes and regulations. And you're saying in this or this article is saying uh, by Dominic Pino that the more is coming, more state tax cuts are coming. 
Yeah, that's right. And, and, and you know, just for uh, the listeners, you know, Dominic Pino is this young kid who's really, really like a supply side economist who's like in, going to be a big future intellectual leader in our country. Mm. And if you go read his stuff at National Review, you're going to find that, you know, Rich Lowry and the team, once again, they found somebody mm. you know, you, out in the wilderness that's a conservative. And, and so Dominic just went and, and looked at all the states and found that, Basically, you know, moderates even in the states are doing like Kudlow, uh, Steve Moore, uh, mm. uh, uh, and Forbes agenda. They're cutting taxes and watching growth skyrocket. And I think the difference between the federal government and the state governments is the states are competing with each other, uh, except for the blue states, right, which are hemorrhaging people. But they're competing with each other for the location of factories and for citizens even. And because they're competing with each other, then they're forced to pursue efficient policies. And if they don't, then like California, they they hemorrhage businesses and hemorrhage yep. citizens. Yep. And, and, and so that's why states eventually have to cut taxes, because if they don't, then they're not going to have any new uh, factories in their, in their states. All right. Kevin has it. Read Kevin's book, folks. It's called The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. Kevin, I'm going to work on this Hassett for Federal Reserve Chairman. I like this <laughs> All right. Thanks, Thanks lot, very much for your time, <laughs> folks. I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, distinguished physicist and climate expert Steve Coonan tells us why a slight increase in temperatures have no impact virtually on GDP. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So, an honest report on climate change coming out of the Biden administration's Council of Economic Advisors and Office of Management and Budget. It's an honest report, but it may not have percolated up towards the Oval Office. We bring in Steve Coonan, former Obama Energy Department's chief scientist, uh, former physicist at uh, Caltech, currently professor at NYU, and author of the very important book, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. Very important book. Uh, Steve Coonan, thank you for coming on the show last night. Thanks for this morning. We appreciate it. So let's go through this one more time, because it is interesting to me. All right, so the CEA OMB puts out this report that basically says um, modest increase in the next 80 or 100 years in uh, temperature will have virtually no impact on the economy, all right, which is counter to almost everything the president has said and his allies and so forth and so on. So walk us through this. Yeah, so... What they did was to put out a white paper, uh, which um, is about the how do we account for the effects of climate change uh, in the federal budget. And, of course, the GDP is an important part of that. And what they did was to survey a dozen different estimates of how warming would affect the U.S. GDP. Uh, those estimates are all in the peer-reviewed literature. They're independent of one another and so on. And the great majority, except for two outliers of the 12, the great majority of those estimates conform to the notion of a 1% impact on the U.S. GDP when the 
temperature goes above, uh, let's say, four degrees Fahrenheit compared to what it was in the 19, in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. So uh, essentially, uh, you know, nothing burger is perhaps a, a, uh, a snarky way to say it, but the impact is minimal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this has been known for a long time. Even the IPCC has said that climate change is only one relatively minor determinant of the economic welfare of the globe and the country. See, you're saying if warming reaches 4.5 percent degrees, about what the degrees, degrees, degrees. about what the UN's climate panel projects for 2100. So that's we'll call it 80 years under plausible scenarios for future global emissions. The consensus reduction amounts to less than 2 percent. In other words, if average annual GDP growth is one and a half percent for the next 80 years, the economy would grow 232%. A 2% climate change effect would reduce that growth to 225%. As physicists say, that's a difference in the noise. So, so it's, it's not important. It's not significant. Uh, it's it, it, even most, more importantly, it's smaller than the uncertainties in all of those projections. Right. Okay. Um, okay. No, no, I got it. And there's an accompanying graph that was published in the newspaper, which yeah. is from your Wall Street Journal article. So, and that at, graph is from the report. Ah, that graph is, okay. from, is from the OMB report. And then you're saying the report also uh, omits America's amazing capacity to adapt, if not thrive, under a changing climate. In other words, technolo- technological influences and so forth. Who knows what will happen? It may not warm as much, or maybe yeah. some of the steps and, we're taking and, will be helpful. And, and it's not only technology. It's the way in which we run society, policies, trade, regulation, and so on. I think people forget, and I certainly didn't realize until I started looking into this, how much the country and the world has progressed in terms of human well-being over the last 120 years, let's say. Well, that's right. So you say the U.S., excluding Alaska and Hawaii, has warmed about two degrees Fahrenheit since 1901. So that's your 120 years. Despite that warming, the nation has flourished. Its population has quadrupled. Its average life expectancy soared to 79 years from 48. And its economic activity per capita multiplied around sevenfold. Okay, so... Our nation's experience should lead us to believe that climate change will only be a minor detriment to national welfare. All right, Steve Coonan, having said all that, why have people in the in the administration and a lot of people that you, you say they're allies, why have they, you know, made this horrible case that the world is coming to an end in like 20 years or 30 years? I mean, all this net zero stuff, we've spent trillions and trillions of dollars uh, on so-called climate change projects. Why? Why is this well, necessary? Yeah, I, I, I can't get into the heads, of course, but you can <laughs> give plausible motivations, right? I mean, it is um, a rationale for rallying the country, uh, for imposing uh, all kinds of economic and regulatory changes on the economy and for generally 
um, getting people frightened. You know, I I think I may have told you in the past, I love this quote from H.L. Mencken from the early 20th century. The purpose of practical politics is to keep the electorate alarmed so that they can be clamoring to be led to safety. <laughs> okay. Hey, John, <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> no, that's very good. Right. I mean, really, it's not an existential threat, but we will give the CEA and OMB credit for this. I'm happy to do so. Uh, once upon a time, I actually worked in OMB. Anyway, Steve Conan, folks, read Steve's book. It's Unsettled, What Climate Science te- Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. Sometimes there's a little honesty in Washington, D.C. You never know. Anyway, folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we got John Carney. We're going to talk about what is Bidenomics and what the Federal Reserve is going to do about it. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Much more to come. Larry Kudlow. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We continue our search for something called Bidenomics. Presidents out there on the campaign trail touting Bidenomics. Who knows what Bidenomics really is? Middle out, bottom up. I don't know what it is. Anyway, we bring in John Carney to try to help us. He's Breitbart News Editor for Economics and Finance and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, which is a much-read every day. John, welcome back. So, um, you know, it's so interesting, I, and in a sense so simple. I don't know why I hadn't thought of it, but you nailed it. He talks about the, the, what, the middle out and the bottom up, but your point is it's actually totally top-down, and you're right. He spent $6 trillion, most of it on this climate change nonsense, which I might add, uh, we just we, um, we just had Steve Coonan on talking to us about why there is no climate catastrophe. Anyway, John, give us your definition of Bidenomics. Sure. Um, it is the opposite of what Joe Biden says, as you were just saying. <laughs> he says it's from the bottom up. There's no bottoming up event happening here. It's all straight from the government down, right? And not just down, it's through the, the, you know, the favored companies and the favored industries and the people building the things that the Democrat agenda approves of. So as you were saying, you know, it's a lot of green energy stuff. It's a lot of, you know, electrical battery factories. The idea that this is bottom up is frankly ridiculous. But I'm not surprised because remember, all along from the campaign, Back in 2020, through the early days of the Biden administration, they were lying to us about the economy. They Mm -hmm. began by saying Donald Trump had wrecked the economy. Then they said they inherited a wrecked economy when the economy was growing at 6%. Then they said they desperately needed an American rescue plan. The name of that was a lie because we didn't need a rescue plan at that point. The economy was already recovering. They passed $2 trillion of spending that we didn't need. And then they kept lying. They had the Inflation Reduction Act. So mm. all along, it's been a series of lies. So we shouldn't be surprised that this, you know, bottom up, middle out thing is not true. It's just it. it there's nothing about it. That's true. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so true. It's it's like there. This is money doled out to corporations uh, on this, cl- all this Green New Deal stuff, blah, 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 blah. 
It's also, you know, John, it's money doled out to Democratic interest groups in the blue states and the blue city mayors, you know, labor unions, teachers unions, uh, anti-poverty groups. I mean, it's a typical, you know, scratching every liberal itch in the Democratic Party. And uh, well, in order a- to get mo- in order to get money from some of these things, you have to agree that you're going to. Uh, employ, you know, make sure you have daycare services in the community for your workers. That is a handout to a Democratic interest group. That is mm. exactly what that is. There's a lot of ESG. There's a lot of DEI in this stuff. There's a lot of woke stuff in all this. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's very simple. You know, uh, you know Douglas Holtzikin. Dougie Holtzikin is an old friend, a very distinguished Ph.D. economist former director of the Congressional Budget Office, he said the same thing, John. He said exactly the same thing. And he said he was particularly offended by the fact that Biden continues to talk about $1.7 trillion of deficit reduction, which even the Washington Post called uh, a bottomless Pinocchio. So, you know, you've got strong allies uh, on your case to this. You think this... I mean, you think people are going to be fooled by this, honestly? I don't. I think that people can see that there's a difference between a economy that's genuinely booming. Right now, by the way, the economy is not booming. Uh, the economy has barely been growing mm. for the last six to nine months. Mm-hmm. It's expected to slow even more as the year goes on. So we don't have a booming economy. People can sense that. They know that this idea that the deficit came down from the numbers of the, you know, the pandemic expenditures, of course it came down. Nobody in the world thought it was not. If, if it didn't come down from that level, it would be like fighting World War II for eternity, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you, when the war ends, you bring down the spending. That's what happened with the pandemic. That's why the deficit got reduced. Nothing to do with Biden. And finally, this idea that like Biden claims credit for you know, the most jobs ever when we know what this was. It was reopening the economy that created these jobs. And I think people see through this. I don't think they're fooled. You look at the Biden approval numbers and when it comes to the economy, he's, you know, way, way down. You still looking for a recession in 24? You've been saying not 23, but 24. Are you staying with that? I am. I don't think I think right now the uh, rotation into services. The good sector is in a recession, right? The manufacturing is mm-hmm. in a recession. Uh, construction's doing okay, but a lot of that's probably government subsidies, um, you know, going into things like the CHIPS Act and mm-hmm. uh, infrastructure. But, uh, and th- the housing market is starting to bounce back, but I think that uh, the services sector is actually going pretty strong. And I, I actually, the, the jobs numbers we saw yesterday had leisure and hospitality, the, the number of jobs that they said were created in June, I think it's wrong, frankly. I think it was a lot more. I think the ADP number, which was almost 10 times the amount of the, uh, the Labor Department number, was probably closer to the truth. We hire a lot of people into leisure and hospitality in the summer months. Those get seasonally adjusted. But I think it was, from what I can tell, it was a strong number. People are, you know, restaurants are crowded. You, you know, you, beaches are crowded. People are out. They're vacationing. There's a lot of money being spent in the leisure and hospitality industry right now. So I don't think we have a recession this year, but I think we get one next year, uh, partly because of these long, and you know, la- these variable and long lags, 
mm-hmm. for interest rates. The Fed hiked interest rates a lot. It's taking longer than a lot of people thought for them to kick in, but eventually they will. And they're, and we probably still have two more hikes in the pipe. So I do think we get a recession eventually. Well, that was what I was going to ask you. Uh, we talked about it last night on the TV show a little bit. Uh, I would probably rather not, but the fact that they're going to raise rates, their target rate, at least a couple more times. I mean, inflation is sticky, John. You know, I went back and looked after our, uh, after the show last night. The Cleveland Fed median CPI is still very high. It's just let it's just south of seven percent. That's right. We we the the internals of inflation and. I, I believe that the median CPI is actually the best predictor of where inflation is going. So mm-hmm. when that is not coming down, that is sending you the message that really inflation is not coming down. I think the Fed got the easy part of inflation, you know, which was how, you know, we were up at 9%. We were able mm-hmm. to bring that down to 6 That was easy. Bringing it down to 4 was a little harder. Bringing it down between 4 to 2 is going to be very hard. I think they're going to discover that next year, even though they're not planning on raising interest rates right now next year, they're planning on basically holding the the rate the same from wherever they get to at the end of this year, I think they're going to discover that they need to do a couple more rates because they're going to see inflation doesn't, you know, might get down to 3.5%, but it won't approach anywhere near 2%. Well, you know, uh, John Taylor of the Taylor Rule, he was on this radio show last weekend weekend before he said six percent so what are they now they're five and a quarter five to five and a quarter so there's two maybe three more to get to six percent yeah i think we have two more this year i think they're going to do definitely do one in the july meeting there's no august meeting we will hear from powell when he speaks at jackson hole that almost counts as a fed hike if he comes out and is super hawkish again at that Mm. then we'll but we'll probably get a hike in the, at the September meeting, then I think they'll they'll want to wait and see what happens. I do think they're going to feel a lot of political pressure in an election year next year. I mean, if they have to raise high rates more than once or twice mm-hmm. next year, and especially if that threatens to put the economy in a recession, the amount of political pressure from the Biden administration on the Fed is going to be enormous. And I, I mean, you were on the other side when there when when the Trump administration was putting political pressure on the Fed. I'm not sure, though, that they're able to withstand the pressure from the Biden administration. Don't you think they'll keep the rates high? Yes, I do think that they will not cut, that that the rates will will remain high Mm -hmm. through the end of 2024 into the beginning of 2025. Then, depending on what the economy is doing, they may adjust. But I think one of the things that Wall Street still hasn't adjusted its brain to is that we went through a period where, you know, rates stayed around zero for so long, and then we raised them a little bit, and then they had to drop back down to zero because of the pandemic, that we sort of got used to the idea that, like, maybe a normal Fed funds rate is 2%. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true anymore. I think a normal Fed funds rate is probably 4 or 5 or 6%. Yes, yes. And I, that's going to take a whole new adjustment for yes. people to get used I, to. I, I absolutely agree. We're out of time. But you know what? This is a good topic for us. Maybe we'll talk about it on the TV show this coming week. You're, I think you're exactly right, John. 
I don't think stocks or bonds have wrapped their head around that factoid that you just mentioned. Anyway, folks, John Carney, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. It's a must-read. Comes out every single day. We'll take a break. I'm Kudlow. Other side of the break, Michael Schellenberger, who released the Twitter files. He's going to talk about this Louisiana federal judge who was ruling against the Biden administration's censorship. We need some free speech in this country. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So a major decision by a federal judge down in Louisiana. Government officials cannot coerce social media platforms to do what the government wants them to do. This is a free speech issue in violation of the Constitution. Of course, the Biden administration is fighting back, as they always do. So we bring in Michael Schellenberger, who is a terrific investigative journalist, founder of Environmental Progress, also uh, released a big chunk of the Twitter files uh, not too long ago. Michael, welcome back, and thank you for helping us on the TV show and the radio today. Tell us where this is going to lead uh, in your judgment. I mean, let let me qualify that. This was about COVID. It was about COVID lockdowns. It was about vaccinations also. Are there other issues embodied in this uh, federal court decision? Yeah, it actually covered a range of issues, including election skepticism, including COVID origins, I mean, it's important to remember that uh, Facebook censored the New York Post's op-ed suggesting that COVID came from a lab in February 2020. So this has been going on for a very long time. I personally have been censored by Facebook uh, since 2020. At issue here is when the government is threatening these social media platforms with basically no longer existing because... There's something called Section 230, which protects social media companies from liability. If they don't have that, they can't operate. And so what you had is the Biden administration constantly threatening companies that it would take away that that license if they didn't cooperate. So there's a lot of very threatening behavior, a lot of bullying, um, and we don't know where it's going to go. I mean, the courts have not wanted to deal with this problem because it there is legislation there that Congress really needs to reform and clarify, but it could go to the Supreme Court. We've heard Clarence Thomas say that the social media companies should be more like utilities that are regulated utilities, um, but we are now seeing more competition uh, with a new competitor to Twitter. So Mm. it's a very quickly changing situation, and it's not at all obvious how this is going to resolve itself. Michael, how did they um, censor you? I said I was censored for accurate information that they felt would lead people to the wrong conclusions. So (laughs) I pointed out that natural disasters are actually going down because the number of people who are dying is going down and the cost is going down because our infrastructure is so much better. Mm Mm-hmm. They said, but extreme weather, some, some kinds of extreme weather are increasing, but that's a different thing. Mm. Extreme weather is not the same as a natural disaster. So they said they, they, they basically got, a, it was a political campaign against me and my book because they felt like I wasn't being sufficiently alarmist. 
even though I agree climate change is happening and I, I agree that something should be done about it. I've been a big advocate of natural gas and nuclear power. Mm-hmm. So they, it was a political uh, effort to censor me. We also have seen the White House has demanded more censorship by the social media companies of people who disagree on things like the value of renewables, mm. which is not even a, it's not a scientific question. It's a question of the problem of having unreliable sources of energy like renewables. So this has been a lot of abuse of power. And I would say too, Larry, just I think it's important for people to know. I mean, there's abu- we see abuses of power in many of our institutions right now, including the FBI including an NIH, which led a disinformation campaign to claim that somehow the idea that COVID might have come from a lab was a conspiracy theory. It was never a conspiracy theory. It was always a very, very probable. In fact, Fauci's own scientist said the most likely scenario for COVID. So we're just seeing this really terrible abuse of power where all all governments and politicians want to control the narrative. They want to do propaganda, but they went so far in basically demanding that their that their opponents not be allowed to speak. You know, one person that totally agreed with you on the natural disaster stuff. I'm sure you know this is Bjorn Lomborg. It was a pretty, sure, we're, you know, we we're, we know, we've known each other for years, of course. Yeah. I mean, he said the same thing. He wrote articles about it. He you know put up uh, graphs and charts about it. But a lot of these guys, uh, a lot of the scientists uh, who disagreed on COVID, I think were more right than wrong. I mean, well, of course, and not only that, but you have to have people. This is the other dangerous thing. And this is a very old trick is you say, oh, no, 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 it's an emergency. So therefore, we can't have free speech. Uh. Well, no, because in order to deal with a crisis like COVID, you needed free speech. You needed debate, particularly since remember what happened. We had a strategy called focused protection, where you basically protect the vulnerable, the elderly, the people that could be sickened. Not, you don't lock down the whole society. That was never the plan. Well, instead they locked down the whole society. It was the scientists who said we should do what we have been planning to do for years, focused protection. They were censored. So it was actually the mainstream, the people that were articulating the mainstream view. And Fauci and Collins, it was actually Collins, his boss, Francis Collins at NIH, who said, we have to immediately debunk these fringe epidemiologists. These were scientists from Harvard and Stanford. Mm -hmm. So this is a totally political operation designed to, and in that case, perhaps, we can't prove it, but it looks like a cover-up by people who very well may have caused the pandemic in the first place. Um, didn't the uh, didn't the government try to censor people on the Hunter Biden laptop? Didn't they threaten social media on that? Well, Larry, this is the, one of the most interesting examples. So they did. They they the FBI former head of FBI general counsel, the former top lawyer to the FBI had gone to Twitter, he was the guy had made the strongest case to censor the Hunter Biden story in the New York Post inside of Twitter. That was one of the stories I, I reported on. He got, he, it, the, the Hunter Biden laptop story in the New York Post had not violated Twitter's terms of service. Hmm. They argued that, so they, they said, it doesn't matter, we should censor it anyway. But honestly, it was the censorship, the censorship was eventually lifted 
But the censorship contributed to the perception among many people, including myself, I was a Democrat at the time, I'm an independent now, but it contributed to the sense that there was something wrong with the story, hmm. that, there, that the New York Times, or the New York Post, rather, had manipulated it, or maybe the Russians were involved somehow. That was the perception. Of course, it turned out that the New York Post article was, was accurate, um, that there was no additional exaggeration. The New York Post actually did a great job. The New York Post should have gotten a, a Pulitzer for this. Hmm. And the um, FBI had this stuff a year earlier before the yes. Post put it out. Yeah, I mean, they knew they knew they had this stuff. I like the I love the Russian disinformation on the Hunter Biden laptop. That's just fabulous uh, stuff. But you know, this COVID stuff. Uh, I mean, I think doesn't a lot of the evidence now show that the COVID lockdown did much more harm than good. Of course, I mean this is it's a very strange. Ex- when you look back on it, it's very strange because the people that had done all the planning for years and years, it's, it, you know, there's one of the things you sometimes heard, oh, we weren't, pl- we didn't prepare. We were prepared. Mm-hmm. What happened is the politicians did something completely different than what the, what the, the planning had shown they should do for a, a, new, a new virus like that, particularly one that, that, that really impacted the elderly and people that had pre-existing conditions. Mm. It did not affect children. Mm. I mean, just van- like if you, your, your kids were at far more risk of many other things than COVID. And college and so, kids, too. Yeah, and college kids, too. So, so, I mean, we really ended up punishing young people. They ended up losing, you know, the 13-year-olds, you, know, you know, are showing, are, are definitely at least a year behind in math. Mm. It's been terrible for the kids. It's worse for the poor kids, of course. It's worse mm. for children, you know, for minority kids. Yeah. So it's really quite terrible. And you would also, you know, but so it's a, an abuse of power. That's the way to understand it. It's abuse of power. There hasn't been. We need a 9-11 style bipartisan commission on that. Michael Schellenberger, are you, can people get you on Substack? Substack, yeah. It's called Public. It's a All Substack right. publication. Terrific stuff. Michael Schellenberger, thank you ever so much. Folks, we're going to take a break. Other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, you can get this show on the Internet. You can live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. Around the country, throughout the globe, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And by the way, during the week, Fox Business Network, name of the show is Cudlow. It runs 4 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday every day. If you can't reach us at 4 for some reason, just text your favorite nine-year-old and she'll show you how to DVR the show and you'll never miss a thing. Anyway, we're going to do some stock market work. It's a very messy, sloppy week for stocks. The Dow is off 673 points. The Nasdaq down 127. The S&P 500 down 51. On top of all that, or maybe causing that, interest rates have been rising quite a lot. Quite a lot. The 10-year Treasury note is now back to 406 was up 23 basis points for the week. All these rates, the five-year was up 20 bips. The 30-year was up uh, 18 bips. Mortgage rates up 16 
30-year mortgage rate is now 7.31%. That is not good. That is not good. Anyway, we're going to bring in our two distinguished investment guests, John Najarian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, and Mike Ozanian, who's assistant managing editor of Forbes Media and co-host of the TV show Sports Money. That plays on the Yes Network. And Mike Ozanian, you know, I, I just I can't even say anything about the Yankees. I'm sorry. I just I can't. Thank it's so depressing. It is so depressing. Uh, I just want to ask you one quick question, John Najarian. I beg your, you know, beg your pardon on this, uh, but I get my pal Ozanian here every now and then. Is it time for Aaron Boone to go? Is that is that part of the story here? Nobody wants to say that, okay? So I want to ask you. Yeah, but I I wouldn't just get rid of him. I would. They have to change the whole regime in the sense of the guy who runs analytics, mm -hmm. uh, Brian Cashman, and then Aaron Boone. I I think on that totem pole, actually, Aaron Boone is probably the least culpable because yeah. whatever their analytics have been in telling them that you know. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton was worth the money, Josh Donaldson was worth the money, so on and so forth. And the way they play players, shift players all around, the whole thing, I think they got to replace their whole analytics team and then change the GM and, and the manager. I think just changing the manager probably wouldn't do very much because they'd still be run by the same system. It would be like changing the guy who's the head of the money management team when you're using the same analytics to pick mm. stocks. And your performance in bed. That, that's, I mean, have, that's my have, feeling on it. I, you know what? Um, that, that's eminently reasonable. It just—I mean, how can you have a starting third baseman who's hitting one forty? I mean, really? Well, the I Yankees mean, come have on. The, the, the Yankees have the third lowest on-base percentage in the American League. The last yeah. time I checked, and yeah. the only reason why they're above five hundred, and as we chat this morning, still a wild card team for the playoffs is because they've actually got an outstanding pitching. Mm. But uh, they're hitting up and down the lineup, and it became, you know, it wasn't good, but once Judge was sidelined, it really highlighted how bad it was. I, I don't, I'm not sure I've seen one player represent so much of a team's offense uh, as Aaron Judge has in, in quite a long time. Uh, it, it's... Uh, it's really astounding how far down in terms of on-base percentage and run scoring they've fallen since he left. And the bad part of that is there's a good chance he may not be back this year. Boy, oh boy. Holy cow. Anyway, John Najarian, having sat through all that, you're very patient and very kind. I'm sorry. I don't get a chance to talk to Ozanian, who's an expert on all this stuff. John, uh, a messy stock market. Rates are rising. The Fed's going to tighten some more. What's going on here? Well, you're right, Larry. And I, I did enjoy Michael's conversation with you just now, but the uh, as I always do. Um, but, yeah, we had the 10-year jump about 10% this week. Mm. Of course, not to 10%, but it was up about 10% on the week. And I think everybody listening to the show knows why. Um, but it was really just, the jobs reports were too hot, mm. and that's not what you needed into the July 26th Fed decision, which seems more and more likely that it'll be at least 25% or 25 bips now 
um, rather than flat. It's up over 95%, according to the CME. Mm. And I think people are starting to understand what that means for regional banks that are holding a lot of paper that's going to get marked against them pretty hard, as well as Joe's and Jane's that are paying on adjustable, not adjustable mortgages, but certainly their credit card debt. And the drawdowns that they've been doing, I think, Larry, it was something like 37 percent of Americans have already tapped into um, their retirement savings through 401ks and so forth, borrowing against themselves, which is not a bad idea versus borrowing against a bank. But um, if you're seeing a third of the country basically tapping retirement funds early, um, that's not a good sign. And I think the economy is not nearly as strong as the stock market would suggest. And, John, if, looking at the 10-year all the way back up uh, over 4%, I mean, it was 330 not so long ago. That's up over 4%. So uh, the present value of uh, future earnings has to come way down, doesn't it? Yeah. And, I mean, uh, multiples have to get slammed. And they will, um, you know, with the exception being um, anybody who can really at least uh, make a reasonable case, if not an unreasonable case, for using artificial intelligence tools to become more productive. Yeah. Other than them, hmm. uh, virtually everything else has to come down, Larry. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I think we're seeing it all over with uh you know, it's it's service sector jobs that we're seeing. We're not seeing, you know, people uh, paying big bucks to people. We're seeing the $17 an hour jobs, which are great, but that's not really the sign of a great economy. It's the sign of trying to lure people back into jobs that they might not have liked that much pre-pandemic, and then they found out how little they liked it during the pandemic. Are these interest rates going to generate a recession next year? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I think if the uh, Fed, it's the craziest thing, Larry. I mean, you're obviously the, the head of the president's economic council uh, under the previous administration and a lot of other uh, bona fides to you. Uh, when you look at the idea that they're going to um, perhaps make two more rate increases, and yet the dot plot shows that they're going to make uh, four uh, 25 basis points cuts mm. in 2024. Who would do that? Right. It doesn't make any sense. You're going to basically hit the brake pretty hard right now and then say, but we're going to release it completely and we might even be cutting up to a full percentage point next year. That seems crazy to me. Uh, this is, you know, because it's always compared to turning a battleship or a aircraft carrier and they don't turn very fast. Um, and yet they're going to try to make it turn fast, and they don't have a magic pill to make that happen. You know, Mike Hosanian, uh, I had um, Kevin Hassett on earlier in the show talking about uh, an interesting new study out to show you how bad the Federal Reserve's uh, dot plot is, how bad their forecasting has been, and that the forecasting has been extremely misleading. Maybe they're trying to influence expectations to cover up their misses, but the whole thing's a disaster. There, there's not going to be a rapid drop in rates. They're going to keep those uh, Fed funds target rate high because they still have a sticky inflation problem, don't they? Right. And the, and the example you pointed out about interest rates shows, I think, that the market's not buying it. 
I, my sense is, in terms of the Fed, I don't know. I'm going back, I don't know, to, to Volker, Paul Volcker's era. It's become mm-hmm. politicized. It's almost like, like I don't even think they look at the money supply. Every time I read something about what the Fed is doing, it's saying, well, the job market's too high. The job market has nothing to do with inflation. We had great job markets during the 80s and 90s, uh, great wage growth, real wage growth, and, and very tepid inflation. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a money supply issue. And to further uh, John's point where he was saying the possibility of recession next year, I mean, the money supply has been choked off. So I, I, I view that as a real negative. All of this, you know, the people, the optimists, if you will, have pointed to the real GDP numbers. But the growth in that 2% or better the last couple of quarters isn't being driven by the private sector. It's being driven by government spending, Mm -hmm. which has been increasing at a faster rate than GDP. You know, if you you look at private domestic uh, spending, you know, you're you're talking about it actually contrasting it, uh, uh, decreasing. So there's a real bifurcation between the private sector and the federal government. And even in the private sector, it's separated. I think much of, so much growth now is being driven uh, by about six or seven red states. Uh, yes. you know, and compared to where I live here in New Jersey, I mean, yes. you know, things are, things are awful. So, so it's just like the stock market itself, where even though the growth that we've had, the increase, and in it, it's largely been driven by just a handful of stocks, mm. and, and, and which is driven up, by the way, the forward PE to the S&P 500 to about 18 or 19. So, so again, I think that sets us up for a steep decline because as profit margins are falling, the price-earnings ratio is increasing, and I don't think there's going to be the profit growth in the couple of quarters ahead to support that. By the way, we're going to take a break, but your point about the money supply is very interesting. The Fed doesn't look at the money supply. The whole M2 argument has been pushed off the board by the economics profession. But during that period in the 80s and 90s called the Great Moderation, when we had strong growth with low inflation, okay, guess what? Money supply was moderate for 20 years. You could take a look at it. M2 ranged you know, three, four, five, six percent. You didn't have plus 30 and minus uh, 10 or whatever we've had in the last couple of years. It was very moderate, uh, whether wittingly or not. Nonetheless, that was a story. And we also had tax cuts and minimal regulations during that period. And so that supplied the growth on the supply side of the economy. We are doing everything differently right now. And my last point to to what you uh, just said on government, adjusted for revisions, the biggest gainer in the jobs report was government jobs, up 60,000. Okay, that was the single biggest increase in the jobs report. All right, fellas, take a quick break. I promise I won't talk about the Yankees anymore. We've got John Najarian, co-founder of Market Rebellion, and Mike Ozanian, assistant managing editor of Forbes Media and co-host of Forbes Money on the Yes Network. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with more stocks. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking with John Najarian, and we're talking... Uh, who are we talking to? Michael... Z- oh, my God. Michael Ozanian, Yankee... You know, God, what? He may never come back. 
You're absolutely right. <laughs> I can't get over that point. I can't get over that point, Michael Zanian. I'm will, so sorry. I will always come back. I will always, always come back. You're the best. You're the best there is. John Nigerian, what's the outlook for the stock market? It all sounds sort of pessimistic here. I'm uh, not sure what the way out is. And with interest rates rising, the outlook for profits is very murky. The outlook for the economy is very murky. The stock market may be kidding itself. This rally we had this spring, I don't know. What do you think? Well, with with us, you know, right back here at record highs again, I think the, uh, the stock market is basically just uh, telling people that there is an awful lot of potential out there in some of these new technologies, like I mentioned already, AI. But mm-hmm. uh, that's also a threat. It's a threat to jobs. Um, I'm not saying that we should bury our head in the sand and not let AI uh, exist and help uh, American companies and worldwide companies, but it clearly will limit people that, uh, for instance, Michael Ozanian and some of the folks uh, that are doing all this work with data and so forth. Um, it, it's going to limit the amount of jobs that people have because of its potential to do that um, in its true form, you know, basically just taking that data and crunching it fast without human intervention. Um, and it'll just get better and better at doing that. So um, as far as the economy right now, I, I would think that things are okay, but they're not wonderful, Not certainly not as wonderful as they would be um, if job creation was uh, in, in the sectors other than, as you said, government jobs, service sector. Um, I'm happy for both of those and for anybody that gets a job in service or with the government, but those aren't the jobs that uh, traditionally we have relied on to build wealth and prosperity in America. Mm. Michael Zane, I think he just put you out of a job. <laughs> Not Michael, a little bit of time, a little bit of time, uh, yeah. because uh, as, as my friend John pointed out, it's not going to, you know, work 100 percent overnight. There was a website just yesterday or so came out with a story about the most valuable uh, sports teams. And what they did was they they used AI to do the list, but mm. all the values that they published were from my list that I published a few years ago. <laughs> so I still so I still have a job. I, 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 there's still a, there's still time for me. John and Jerry and the TV and radio talking heads have still have a future. <laughs> Am I going to be okay? I mean, I don't you know. It's not going to be that much longer. Well, yeah, you do have that because other than live sports, which, of course, Michael um, so famously and wonderfully covers sports and the valuations of teams and all that stuff. um, As far as live sports, that is still the number one and almost the only draw uh, on network television these days. The other things are things like what you cover, Larry, because the markets change by the minute, by the second. So people need that live. Anything that they want to watch live, that has legs. Anything they don't watch live might not. All right. Stock market may not have legs either. John Najarian, Market Rebellion, Mike Ozanian, Forbes, and Sports Money. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it very, very much. Folks, next up is going to be Money in Politics with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. How did the Bidens make all their money? Would somebody please explain that to me? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. 
Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money in politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Vice President of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and WABC radio host of More Money following this show on many of these same stations. Please watch, listen to More Money. I guess you can't watch it, but you can listen to it. All right, kids. I'm going to look at this start off here. The Hill, Liz Peak, Joe Biden's Bidenomics tour, a risky bet as jobs market cracks. Okay, the jobs market cracks was a pretty sluggish, sloppy number. But Liz, I'm on a constant quest to find out what Bidenomics means. Before we have to figure out why it's risky, what is Bidenomics? Middle out, bottom up, really? I thought the whole thing was a massive top-down government spending grift for Democratic uh, interest groups. Yeah, it's exactly what it is, Larry. Bidenomics to me is big spending, big government, and big labor. Those three things, which, by the way, are not conducive to a growing, prosperous economy. And we're seeing that right now. I mean, all this spending has driven up costs, driven up inflation, middle-class wages have not gone anywhere in real terms. In fact, they're down over the last 26 months, which is why, by the way, not being stupid, middle-class voters are giving Joe Biden the lowest marks of any income group. They get it that their livelihoods have been debased by this uh, increase in inflation, and nothing that Joe Biden is doing is helping that matter. So Bidenomics is a bust, and I think we are beginning to see the cracking of the one solid thing that he has been pointing to over and over again uh, in this Bidenomics tour, which is job gains. Job gains faltered this past month. They're going to falter more. And what also we saw was a very big uh, revision downward in jobs added, 110,000 for just two months, April and May. More revisions downward are coming for reasons we can get into. But I think the numbers have been overblown. And basically, that is really the only thing that Joe Biden um, can claim has been working. Yeah, so adjusted for these downward revisions, you're quite right. Uh, Non-farm payrolls actually were up 99,000. That's all. And private payrolls were up 51,000. That's all there was. And Steve Moore, the single biggest category of job increases under Bidenomics in the month of June was, wait for it, Government, government. Yep. 60,000 jobs from government. So this is part of the grift, okay? Companies that subscribe to climate warming and EVs and batteries and all that stuff, unions, teachers' unions, poverty, uh, you know, daycare centers, uh, blue states and blue city Democratic mayors and interest groups, they're all getting it. Now, I would regard that as a top down not a bottom up what do you think yeah no there's question about it no question about it in fact i was struck by those very same numbers that uh the majority of the jobs that were created uh net in uh in june were government jobs so that's where and by the way government jobs kind of hit a fake job right because a government <laughs> worker can only work if if you've got private sector workers supporting there so we want to see a reduction 
I took some flack for saying this yesterday, but we want to see a reduction in government workers, not an increase in government workers, uh, given how, how much in debt and, uh, our, and how big our government is today. And so uh, I would just add one thing to what uh, Liz was saying, is that um, the green movement, we have to start defining the, quote, green movement as not, quote, green as an environmental, but green as in money. Mm. So this is just this is just a massive multi-trillion dollar um, climate change industrial complex that's been built in the United States and around the world. This is not about saving the planet, folks. It's about people getting really, really, really rich off of government programs uh, that keep expanding in size. We had something in the hotline uh, the other day that uh, worldwide over the last 20 years, you know how much money has been spent on climate change, Larry? Uh, yeah, six trillion. I think yeah, somewhere close to that. I mean, and by the way, uh, carbon emissions are higher now than ever before. <laughs> yeah, what did that six trillion dollars buy? <laughs> by the way, it's an interesting piece, Liz. Uh, I don't know if you saw it by Steve Coonan. Uh, Biden's own Council of Economic Advisors, along with the Office of Management and Budget, published a white paper that basically said. Um, the consensus view of the increase in temperatures has almost no impact on uh, the economy. Now, this is the CEA and OMB. It, it didn't percolate up into the Oval Office. I, <laughs> right. I doubt if Biden's ever talked to a CEA. But the, but it was interesting. Coonan, who was a brilliant climate guy and a you know is a theoretical physicist and all that, you know, he wrote a good piece in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, we had him on the radio a little bit while ago, and he was on TV last night. But, yeah, um, th- there's, there is no existential threat, okay? What there is is, th- you know, you talk about trickle-down, okay? This is trickle-down. This is government trickle-down. This has nothing to do with middle-out or bottom-up. Yeah. No, so I, and, one... and I think – yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to make no, one no, no, quick point on that. Uh, just one quick point. You know, I was talking to David Malpas, who was the head of, you know, a friend who was the head of the World Bank and did a great job uh, there trying to suppress some of the craziness. But one of the points that he made me, to me was so interesting when he'd go to these international meetings and all of the Western leaders, including Biden, were talking all about climate change and how these poor countries have to have built solar plants. And, it, and, you know, it was so interesting because he said, these poor countries don't have any interest in they don't need solar plants. They need mm. clean water. They need energy. They, I mean, it's, it's cultural imperialism for our all these rich countries to sell, tell these poor countries they have to stay poor by not using energy. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the worst kind of hypocrisy to be yep. shoving a climate agenda down the throat of countries that just really can't afford exactly. it, and many of them can't. What's interesting right. to me is there's been quite a bit written, recently written about China looking for energy security. Well, we all know that energy security is national security. China gets right. it. The Biden administration does not. China is willing to basically push back against all the climate activists in their country and certainly worldwide saying, look, we, our renewable uh, investment is pretty substantial, but it is not secure. This is not secure energy. We have to continue to build coal plants, which, of course, is like kiss of death for environmentalists uh, because we have to backstop all the renewables, something that England didn't learn. The United States is going to learn in the next couple of years because we're going to have power outages in parts of the country where there is no excuse for power outages. 
We've never right. had that before. Right. And it will all be at the doorstep of this climate nuttiness that has overtaken this country. But, Larry, I think you can see the reason for this. Biden is talking. They're rolling out this map of where they're spending money, the manufacturing boom and stuff. It is all about politics. It's all about saying to South Carolina, look, we put a plant to make solar panels in your state. It's going to bring 40 jobs and $400 million and so forth. And they are doing that. If you watch it, it is a total political ploy. And it is so offensive. I can't even get my arms around it. (laughs) In the last two months, manufacturing jobs have gone up 4,000. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not much. And, and incidentally, on that point, Larry, you know, the the president we had this chart showing yeah. that you know this big increase in in uh, and he was in, in manufacturing jobs. I don't know how we squared that with the number that you just provided, but uh, he was saying, and this is because of our climate agenda and because of the Inflation Reduction Act. And so what you've got now is the government is directing whatever investments going on. It's all being directed by government. Larry. And so, you know, we're built, it's almost like we're building pyramids and we're building things that are not productive investments. And I hope all of your listeners, because I know that uh, you guys remember this, remember Solyndra and remember yeah. what yeah. happened under Obama when they were going to, they tried this already with the whole, we're going to have all these government subsidized companies and Fisker Automotive and, all, and every one of them went bankrupt. And I, I guarantee you, we're going to see a lot of that happening in the next 18 months with all these quote investments the Biden is making. By the way, the con- construction and manufacturing adjusted for inflation has gone nowhere. It's about yeah. where it was in 2015. That's right. Okay, Conrad de Quatros did the chart. We ran it yep. on the show. You, yep. ra- you ran a similar chart in the hotline. The, hotline. I mean, yep, yep. the whole thing is bogus. First of all, we're in a manufacturing recession. The ISMs yeah. for manufacturing are down eight consecutive months. Okay, and this guy's running around the country bragging about a manufacturing boom. All right, there is a boom. 60,000 jobs in government. This is, I mean, actually, last month, 47,000. The average for the last year is 50,000 a month. It's the best performing part of the entire yeah. jobs uh, schematic. It's just an, absolutely oh. incredible. The grift goes <coughs> on, all right? That's what Bidenomics is. It's one big grift. And speaking of a grift, we're going to take a break. Got to take a break. <laughs> I want to, my, speaking of grifts, I want to figure out how did Joe Biden make his money? How is it that he has his beautiful estate in Rehoboth or wherever it is? He has a beautiful house in Wilmington, Delaware, and the guy's been a public servant for the last 500 years. All right, we're talking with Liz Peake, some Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and more money on the radio right after this show. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking money politics with Liz Peek and with Steve Moore. Look, kids, there's a story up, uh, Real Clear Politics, by Benjamin Weingarten. I don't know Mr. Weingarten. But the header is, IRS whistleblowers expose DOJ's Biden family cover-up. Who will expose the crimes? Or how Hunter Biden's sweetheart plea deal triggered a bomb of epic proportions that may have blown the facade off the corrupt national security imperiling influence peddling scheme once and for all. The question here before the House, how did Joe Biden make all this money 
to afford his lifestyle. He owns two very substantial homes, multi-million dollar homes. Where did this money come from? Where did it come from, Liz Peek? That's a big question here. And what role, I mean, who's, you know, we can blame Hunter Biden all we want, but I think the boss of this crime family is Joe Biden. And I think he's gonna wind up throwing his son under the bus, but where did the money come from? Where, what did they produce to get all this money? Well, I, I mean, what's interesting is that no one really has asked Joe Biden that or the White House to explain it. Mm. Uh, I, I suppose they would say giving speeches and writing books, but that's a pretty hard pill to swallow given the lack of popularity of this president, among other things. Look, we know, we know that there has been tens of millions of dollars funneled into various Biden family accounts over the last, I guess, 10 years uh, from China, Ukraine, Romania and mm-hmm. other countries. Mm-hmm. It, there's no denying that. I, I don't know how much of it went to Joe Biden. I don't know how much of it went to Hunter, who then paid for things for Joe Biden. But it is honestly, I think it is an incredible thing that the left wing media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, barely has any curiosity about this or has sent reporters to try and follow the money. It's all a question, Larry, of following the money. And I think the American people, in the absence of good reporting and and facts, have really leapt to the conclusion that it is a crime family. This is not working for this White House. Steve Moore, Jamie Comer has estimated, to Liz's point, Jamie Comer has estimated $40 million went into the Bidens. Again, through China, Romania, Ukraine, God knows where else. What is it that they offered in return? What services, what products besides influence peddling? Or wait a minute, maybe it's all influence peddling. Well, you know, there's an old saying about Washington, and boy, do the Bidens prove it, that Washington is a city that people come to do good and end up doing well. And the (laughs) Bidens are certainly, you know, evidence of that. Uh, Biden has been in in the White House or in the um, Senate for, what, 40 to 50 years? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's a good question, Larry. How do, how do you get money? How do you get rich off of being um, in in uh, Congress or being in the White House? And the, and the answer, of, of course, is that they leveraged this. It's it's been influenced peddling. Um, if you are right, and I, look, I don't know the facts here, but if you are right that this is a kind of a connection with the Chinese government, then it's not just graft. It goes beyond that, and it goes to treason. Mm-hmm. Yes, it goes to treason. That is correct. I mean, you, China, Ukraine, Romania, you could maybe add to that Russia. I, I don't know. Oligarchs, Chinese yeah. Communist Party, Intel people. I mean, Liz, you. this is an incredible story. And um, the sense that I have, and there's going to be more this week. Jamie Comer says he's going to make some announcements. He's got private banks uh, private bank accounts uh, that he's going to be unveiling that we hadn't seen before. But the bigger question is, where did this money come from down through the years? I mean, Joe Biden did not start out 
with a $2.5 million estate in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. He did not start out with another mansion in Wilmington, Delaware. As Steve said, he's worked 50 years in the public sector as a senator and vice president and president. Where did this money come from? Well, and, and I think what's intriguing about this is that oligarch in Ukraine who supposedly made tapes and who supposedly was hit up for $10 million bribe by Hunter and his father to be shared equally, he even commented about how the thing was being funneled through so many different LLCs and mm. other kinds of entities it would take 10 years to unravel. My guess is that's true. There's a lot of ways you can launder and hide money and my guess is these people, it looks like these people have gotten pretty good at that. I mean, there's, you know, if, if we just had reporters doing their job, why is it that no one has said to, to Joe Biden or no one will probably say in an upcoming debate because there'll never be an upcoming debate with him? Why use LLCs and why have money going to uh, young women in your family who clearly have done nothing? I mean, it's mm. all. It's also obviously corrupt, uh, Larry. And, and by the way, I, I kind of keep coming back. I'm sort of surprised there hasn't been more thinking about, about Donald Trump's first impeachment. It was about that phone call to the Ukrainian president asking supposedly for dirt on Joe Biden. What if there actually was dirt on Joe Biden? What if the Trump administration was following up? on just what we are talking about now. Mm -hmm. The fact that Joe Biden actually did take a bribe to get uh, influence to help the uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, oligarch have access politically in the United States. All that was, I mean, I think that's what Trump was asking about. And that's what he was impeached about. You know, Steve, every Biden relative, child, grandchild, has an LLC. The only yeah. one that doesn't have an LLC is Hunter Biden's kid in the Ozarks. Yeah. He's the, yeah. the only one who he won't acknowledge. He won't acknowledge that there's a grand Papa Biden won't acknowledge that there's a grandchild in the Ozarks. Maybe <laughs> she'll have an LLC. I don't know. We haven't seen that yet. She's the last one. Or the pole uh, dancer. Well- this question is, well, when is the media start going to start paying attention to this? And I, I know exactly the answer to the question. When the media and the Democrats decided that Biden has a liability. I mean, as a Republican, there's no Democrat in the country. We're, we're losing you. We're, we're losing you. Go close to a Sorry. window or something. Go ahead. Go ahead. Can you hear me better now? Yeah, yeah we got you. Oh, we I, got you. I don't know who you heard. I was just saying that the, the, the Democrats and the media will turn against Biden when they realize that he is a horrible candidate for 20, for, to, to be at the head of their ticket in 2024. So look, think about that, though. Um, suppose there's a Trump-Biden debate. <laughs> what do you think Trump's going to say about this? You think he's going to be silent? I don't think so. You think he's going to raise these issues? So. And what do you think Biden's, how's he going to respond to that? He's going to stand up on the stage and say it's all malarkey? Yep. I mean, really? Is he going to get away with that? (laughs) I mean, Liz Peake, I I mean, I think Biden's polls are falling because of the economy, because the country's underwater with respect to inflation and the middle class. I get all that. But I think this, uh, the Biden crime syndicate stuff is starting to have a big impact on Biden, on his polls. Absolutely. 
the, the polling shows it in whenever asked about honesty and stuff like that. My yeah. gosh, there was a poll out that showed by far the majority of Americans think he did take a bribe. Yes. I, I believe that actually was like last week. By the way, on this grandchild, Maureen Dowd, six hours ago, posted uh, an op-ed saying, it's seven grandkids, Mr. President. So, <laughs> you know, that doesn't sound like uh, a real enthusiastic rah-rah uh, from the New York Times. And we've talked about this before. The Ozark the liberal media is beginning to crack. Liz Peek, Steve Moore. Listen to Steve Moore's radio show on most of these same stations. Thank you, kids. Liz Peek and Steve Moore. Fabulous stuff. I'm Cudlow. We'll be back next weekend.